Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. Happy holidays, everybody. Yeah. This is our last show of the year, uh, and we decided we wanted to end strong. So we had our dear friend, Mr. Mark Onspa, join us uh, to talk about some more weirdness yeah. over the holiday and regale us with some of his amazing stories. Yeah, we asked Mark to just look up interesting things that he can find weird about, you know, Christmas. Stuff, and he did. Well, yeah, stuff well, that he's, we got he's a little studied. more detailed breakdown because um, I know on our last show uh, with Weird Christmas, yeah. we briefly mentioned the Yule Lads. And uh, Mark goes through and, and gives all the names uh, of the Yule Lads and every little misdeed that they do around the house. Yeah, we got. So I love I love talking about that. Yeah, great detail um, on that. Going through, like, I, I won't say it. Yeah. You, you'll hear it in the show. But talking about Christmas spiders and how that solved something for me. What the hell? Yeah, that was so, kind of we kind of so, had like that that, yeah, that more like, you know yeah d- the explode, more you know whoa. head explosion moment yeah so yeah. that part and then of course Mark Onspa is an author and he every time we've had him on the show he has read either one of his short stories from something he has currently published yeah. Yeah. or he has taken the time to write an original story that he has shared on our show for the first time and yeah, which this is, super is cool. this is definitely a Christmas horror story yeah. like this is. Uh, this super is uh, cool. super cool. Yeah, um, super cool. A little spooky, a little gross. Yeah, yeah. And then he ends with, uh, if you've been a longtime listener of the show and if you've listened to our other episodes with Mark yeah, Onspaugh, yeah. uh, you get another retelling of Volpecula, Volpecula uh, which, which is, is a wonderful short story. Not a dry on the studio tonight. Yeah. Uh, love it. Yeah. And uh, what else? What else we got coming up? Um, we well, got, we're, uh, we're this is, we already said this is our last show this year. Yeah. Um, uh, here, well, just a Mocus. little bit, a little bit of housekeeping. Yeah, this is our last show this year. We're we're going to be off for a little bit in the start of the year, unfortunately, because my band is going to record an album. Oh yeah. So I need to stay focused on that, and and then we'll start getting then, ideas. Yeah. To book well, for no. Twenty twenty three. Well, no, we already have stuff booked for twenty twenty three. We're ready to go. It's just yeah, the first well, not the whole year. The first, yeah, we're booked up to the end <laughs> of twenty twenty three. Not the whole year. <laughs> uh, I just have to get. We just have to get through this recording uh, session that we're going to be doing, which is going to be pretty involved. So I need the first couple weeks of January kind of freed up yeah. for that stuff. So, but we're we're here. We're ha- we're happening still like that and. You know, yeah. I mean, as all I can say right now is everybody have a good New Year. Uh, everybody have a good uh, Christmas. Whatever you whatever celebrate, you practice, yeah, whatever, whatever you, you practice. don't practice, it doesn't yeah. matter. Just have a good time because odds you know are you probably have some time off of work. Not the sound. So enjoy not it. Not the sound. Caddy, but you know, I noticed something this Say year. Caddy, too. yeah, caddy. Uh, I noticed like I heard. I've heard a lot of people flat out. Because you remember a couple of years ago, like Merry Christmas, like it was bad to say that people were like trying to ban Merry Christmas. I don't right? know. People are they no, they were trying encouraged Happy Holidays. No, to, to be more yeah, but you know, but yeah, inclusive. But people, well, yeah, I understand that, but I heard I've been hearing that a lot more this year at store. Like I go to a store and grab it, and I hear Merry Christmas. I which I, don't bother me. I, I hear less. it all the time. I I hear it at work, and it doesn't bother me because the intention's the same no matter what you say to me yeah it's to me i think it's, it's just it's about, it's about the intention and even if you went and said hail satan have a good holiday i'd be like cool yeah man hey right on. <laughs> like same intention right, right on yeah uh, you enjoy yourself have so, fun so yeah so i guess yeah happy holidays to everybody uh we hope everybody enjoys themselves spend some time with the family uh, we'll have a couple see you yeah. in 2023 enjoy our discussion with mr mark on
our weirdness into winter by talking about more monsters and folklore and high strangeness and all of the the myriad amounts of reasons why winter is weirder than Halloween. Well, and yeah, so Christmas, the Christmas season, I guess. The, well, just the, the Christmas season in general. And yeah. yeah. Uh, we have Mark Onspa back with us again for the fifth time. It is amazing having our resident author, bard, storyteller, whatever yeah. you want to call him, amazing writer, uh, back on the show to share some stories and some knowledge and some of the cool things that he is going to tell us tonight about why Christmas reigns as supremely weird. Thank you, Mark, for being on the show and joining us tonight. Thanks for having me back. It's so good to hear the two Yay. of you again. Okay. Yeah, and I, I, I echo what Amber said. It's really good to have you back here. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak to us. We really, really, really appreciate it again, Mark. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate being invited. It, I always have a great time with you, too. Cool, cool. So let's get into the weirdness right away, and let's... Let's let's hop over the pond. <laughs> let's try my horrible you British. You tell me how, yeah, my horrible. Uh, you great always Britain tell me how accent. crappy my impersonations yeah, are. I don't and know that, was that wasn't terrible. very good. That wasn't very good. Uh, but let's head over to Wales because Mark found something that is extremely chilling. I briefly looked this up out of curiosity because I was like, "Ooh, what what story is this that he's going to tell us about?" Oh, oh, when I looked it up and I looked at the pictures, I'm like, "That is a thing of nightmares." I have seen artists uh, draw this thing before. Yeah, this I've, is this is horrible. Is, yeah, and this I've, is just pretty much I've, horrible. Scott's looking at a photo of it, and we're just we're just not going to describe just yet because yeah. Mark's going to tell us all about it. But I guarantee you, once he explains what this thing is, and if you don't quite have a grasp on it. Go Google this thing because, like I said, you will you can easily have nightmares about how ghoulish and disturbing this thing <laughs> is. So, Mark, please tell us about what happens in Wales that involves a horse skull and other weirdness. Oh, well, now you've given it away. Well, no, I didn't. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> so it's it's called the Mary Lloyd. And this is a hobby horse. Now, when I was a kid, a hobby horse was just a little fabric horse head or a vinyl horse head with a string mane on a pole, and you would ride it around. Yeah. Nothing I ever did. I, I didn't find them appealing, but a lot of kids had them. So in Wales, they took this nice idea, and they made it really macabre, where it's an actual horse's skull on a <laughs> pole. <laughs> and sometimes they'll put fake eyes into the horse, or they'll put pieces of glass so it reflects the light. And then they go a little bit further, the person carrying it who's covered with a sheet, so it's just this nightmare ghost demon horse apparition, uh, he has a pull string on the jaw that's spring-loaded so it snaps back no. into place. No. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> so they go from house to house, the Mary Lloyd, with a group of merry men. Uh. Who are dressed like stock characters like Punch and Judy. Okay. And they go from door to door and they sing to be let in for food and drink. And the people inside the house are expected to reject them, at least at first. And they sing back and forth why they want to come in, why they can't come in. And finally, either the Mary Lloyd and company go away or they get invited in. And once they're in, then the horse chases children around with its jaw snapping and its glinting eyes and children are terrified and I, I imagine some of the adults while the leader pretends to try and restrain it 
and then the merry men play music and entertain the household. Uh, now, uh, the local clergy, 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 that was good. The local <laughs> clergy sometimes frowns on this practice, even though some say the Mary Lloyd is based on the Feast of the Ass, which honors the beast that took Mary to Nazareth. Okay. But others think mm. it is purely pagan, which is why the clergy frowns on it and says, nay. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I like that play on that word. <laughs> nay. <laughs> yeah. Say it like Mr. Ed. Right. <laughs> um, so we'll move from this nightmare in Wales to uh, Iceland, where they have stories that are meant to scare children into behaving. And um, this is a group of monsters that all live in a cave as a family, which I think is going to be a new Disney Plus series. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the the matriarch is Grilla. Now, if, if I'm saying that incorrectly, I did listen to how to pronounce it, but uh, people from Iceland don't hate me. I, I don't know the language. Anyway, she's always portrayed as a giantess or troll, and she's a repulsive monster who has an appetite for the flesh of mischievous children. Tasty. So this is no uh, Frosty the Snowman. No, no. No. And she kidnaps kids and eats them after cooking them in a giant pot. Oh, naturally. Now, she wasn't always associated with Christmas. This happened around the 1600s and was possibly influenced by the Brothers Grimm. Uh, in older poems, she was just an ugly, giant, parasitic beggar who demanded parents give her their unruly children. And she could be thwarted by gifts of food or by just chasing her away. But now, she's more proactive. <laughs> she uh, waits for Christmas to hunt for misbehaving children and takes them to her cave, where they become the prime ingredient in kids' stew, which ah. she loves. Oh, tasty. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, her husband is Lepaludi, and he's actually her third husband, so Grilla gets around. And he's lazy and remains in the cave, although I bet he eats more than his fair share of whippersnapper casserole. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and Grilla and Lepaludi have 13 children. Now... I have a book on Christmas where they, they're called the Yule Lads. Oh, yeah. And they had a picture of them, and they all look like very pleasant young men in traditional Icelandic costumes. And I ask you, can two trolls have handsome children? I, I don't think so. No. I would think I think no. they're probably pretty uh, awful looking. And um, the Yule Lads are... They're sort of underachievers in this household of cannibalistic monsters, so they're often portrayed more as pranksters. And uh, sometimes they even leave gifts in children's shoes like a sort of Santa Claus, although bad kids get a rotten potato, oh. which well, is a really uh, terrible yeah. gift. No, that's horrible. And uh, each one has a different favorite prank they use to annoy people. We have the sheep coat Claude, who harasses sheep, but is impaired by his stiff peg legs. <laughs> Gully Gawk hides in gullies and waits to steal milk. So you can see these; these are a far cry from cannibalism. Oh yeah, cannibalism. Yeah. 
Stubby is abnormally short and steals pots and pans to eat the crust out of them. So he, he could be called crust liquor, I guess, too. <laughs> spoon liquor is and a malnourished liquor of spoons. <laughs> I love that one. If you live in Iceland, I would wash your spoons before you use them because you never know when spoon liquor's been around. <laughs> Hot scraper steals leftovers. Bowl liquor hides under beds, waiting until someone puts down their covered bowl, which he makes off with. Door <laughs> slammer likes to slam doors, especially at night, to wake people up. Skier gobbler steals Icelandic yogurt. Sausage swiper, no, no jokes, please, uh, hides in the rafters steal sausages that are being smoked. Window peeper, spies through windows looking for things to steal. Doorway sniffer, another pervy uh, Yule lad, is on the hunt for bread. That's all he's looking for, bread, but he's sniffing at your door for bread. Meat hook, which sounds really awful. Just uses his hook to steal meat. Not kids, not your uncle, not your grandma. Just a rasher of bacon or piece of ham or something. Candle stealer follows children to steal their candles and eat them. The candles, not the kids. <laughs> Thanks for sharing <clears throat> Excuse me, one. the last denizen of this fun family is the Yule Cat. This is a giant cat who lurks in the snowy countryside looking for anyone who has not received new clothes by Christmas Eve. If they don't have new clothes, he eats them. And some think this legend came about for farmers could get their workers to be more diligent about processing wool. Hard workers got new clothes, lazy workers got nothing, and were prey for the Yule cat. So mind your manners, get new clothes. Carry a sock with you or something when you're out there in Iceland running around the snow. Iceland particularly seems to have a lot of these winter Yule time legends and pieces of folklore. I mean, I don't know if that's partly because because of where they are, the weather. And I know like something like 85% of the population in Iceland, actually, they do believe in like elves, fairies. Um, They take it very seriously there. Mm -hmm. It's not Mm -hmm. just something that's like part of... Grimm's fairy tales or in a Disney show. Like, they're like, oh, no, yeah, they're there. They exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's part of our culture, part of what we do. They're here. Like, <laughs> don't question it. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that there's so many stories like this that come out of Iceland. But I, I love hearing about the Yule Lads because it's so strange what they steal and what they do. And obviously they go back to a time when um, – just activities were different. You know, well, now I was going to say, I mean, well, why, why such obscure things because, like no, candles? Be, no, example. because back then you had candles to light your way. We didn't flick a switch on. We're talking because these things go back in okay. time. All right. If we had Yule Lads now, they'd be like cell phone stealer and, um, <laughs> you know, you, YouTube troll. Um, you'd have a whole different array, array of things that these, right. you know, little beasts would do to torture right. the 21st century person. So We still have sausages. Well, yeah. Both these candles also used to be edible. You know, they were made out of tallow. Yeah. Like animal fat. So they were edible. But I think anytime you have a culture, I, I did a novel about the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, people are locked in a longhouse or some giant dwelling like that for the whole winter. So they tell a lot of stories. 
And monster stories that are like a teachable moment or a cautionary tale are popular in every culture. Yeah. You know, but I think, you know, every kid in Iceland knows these stories and they certainly don't want Grilla to take them away and put them in a stew pot, you know, or a slow cooker for Christmas. (laughs) It's sad how many kids tales are part of the part of the thing that will put the fear of God in any kid in these these tales is that you're you're going to get eaten. <laughs> like you're that's the worst. You're going to end up in a pot and a witch is going to cook you and so you better behave or you know something's just going to come along and like just eat you. Sorry. <laughs> like of all the things. Yeah. It's horrible. Two things I noticed is that um Santa often has like an anti-Santa companion with him. And this is usually somebody with dark clothes and a dark beard, sometimes smudges of soot on his face, like there's a character, Schmutzli, <coughs> excuse me, in Switzerland. But these characters have all mellowed over time. They don't kidnap or whip children, but sometimes just admonish them to be good. But the exception is Krampus. Yeah. And Krampus has gotten more frightening over the last few years with people in elaborately scary demonic costumes taking to the streets. And I think this grows out of Halloween mm-hmm. and people taking Halloween and the frightening aspects of Halloween into winter. And also the fact that people have a lot more access to sophisticated props and costumes and makeup effects. And some of them are really elaborate. There are people with Krampus costumes where they actually have a cage on their back with a very realistic looking screaming child in the cage, <laughs> you know, and there's a whole parade of, Crampi, I guess they are. Um, walking down the street, growling at people. Oh yeah. So there, uh, I was someone. And the other thing oh, go ahead. Is interesting is that when I was growing up, you were told Santa sort of in America embodies both the good and bad, because I was told if you were good, you get presents. Yeah. And if you weren't, you'd get coal in your stocking. You yeah. know, or mm-hmm. perhaps a rotten potato. I don't know. <laughs> That would be disgusting. Santa, Santa covers both, you know, here in America. So I guess that's why you have as a naughty and li- nice list. I also read two folk tales that still influence us today. I, I'm not going to recite the tales, but just sort of summarize them. Sure. And oddly enough, one's from Ukraine and one's from Russia. Oh. Which um, is interesting in these troubled yeah. times. Uh, in Ukraine, they have the legend of the Christmas spider. And there was a poor widow who lived with her children in a small cottage. And a pine cone fell in the cottage and took root. And they were all excited they were going to have a Christmas tree. But when it came time, they had no money to decorate it. And when they woke up, the tree was covered in spider webs. And when the sun hit them, they glinted and turned to silver and gold. And they were never poor again. And the people in Ukraine still have spider ornaments on their tree, and some feel that this led to Christmas tinsel. Now, I always thought tinsel was icicles, but some people think it grew out of this tradition in the Ukraine to have, like, you know, faux cobwebs on their tree. Right. So that will be up to you to decide. You can do a 500-word page paper on that. Mark, uh, that is is fascinating because that makes perfect sense, like, with the whole concept of tinsel. And sure, yeah, looking like ice cubes, but – I mean, not ice cubes, icicles, but it does have that wispy, web-like quality 
Uh, I, we've, uh-huh. We haven't put that on our tree since like probably the 90s because we have cats. And then back in the 90s, I saw tinsel coming out of the back of my cat's butt. And I was like, never again, <laughs> never again. She was eating the tinsel. Yeah. Yeah. But what's weird, <laughs> but you just solved a mystery for me. There is a person I know that gifted me, uh, like she made this ornament, this Christmas ornament, and it was a spider. And she's like, yeah, they're Christmas spiders. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, why would you make yeah. these at Christmas? And I wonder if she's familiar with this concept or if she just thought they were a novelty to make or something. But this makes now it makes more sense. Now I'm like, oh, I like this now. It's not so weird. <laughs> she must have heard that. Huh. Frankly, if I woke up and my tree was covered in spider webs, I'd get out of the house. Well, but, uh, yeah. I remember growing up, though, my my parents, as part of the arsenal we had every year to hang stuff from the tree, that was part of the, my mother would put like like fabric, like but, you know, like wispy, like we're talking about. Okay. A lot of times on the uh-huh. tree. And, I mean, I think she may, if I asked her, she would maybe say, well, I want it to look like snow okay. on the tree. But I'm wondering if that even that idea came from somewhere else too, coming from this idea of the spiders. Yeah, I, it's, I an, don't know. it's an interesting thing. I never thought of it that way. That's actually super cool. I mean, now you know. I mean, since I was a kid, they had flocked Christmas trees. We never got one. Um, but that's interesting. You know, that maybe it kind of grew out of um, this cobweb notion and and to a yeah. child maybe it looked more like snow than a cobweb right yeah, yeah. right exactly so i mean they, it could it could go either way i'm not sure so that was the ukraine and there's another story from russia russia, you said. russia. uh the russians have a um a very old story uh goes back hundreds of years called the snow maiden and this is an elderly couple that never had children and they were very sad and they built a maiden out of snow, and she came to life and became the daughter they never had. And she even fell in love with a woodcutter but melted away when spring came. And the moment I read this, I wonder if it inspired the song Frosty the Snowman, which wasn't written until like 1950. Right. And that, of course, snowman that comes to life Mm -hmm. and then melts away, you know, when spring comes. Yeah. And um, I will tell you, I never liked that cartoon. I just <laughs> it never, I like the guys that do the voices, and I like the artist who's, it was a guy from Mad Magazine named Paul Coker Jr., but I just, I never watch it. I watched it once, and that was enough. Yeah, so, it's kind of sad. I mean, it's just, like, he melts, you know? like It is. That little girl's crying. I know. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. a little traumatizing. <laughs> I mean, I, I even get bothered when I used to watch uh, Rudolph and, like, them picking on him and stuff. Like, leave Rudolph alone. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. This is stuff that bugs you as a kid. Um, just always seems ten times worse. And then, yeah, as an adult, I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. Um, but, no, Frosty is a sad tale. I, I agree with you, Mark. I definitely agree on that one. But no, I, I can see someone going through old um, – old, folklore and tales from other countries and then yeah adapting a new kind of americanized version of that i mean we know disney does that with a lot of stuff it always goes back oh to some other gosh. some other parts some other countries some, you know they do that all the time yeah and i think you know there are a lot of people you know who had uh, relatives that came over from russia and probably knew this story oh sure and just 
made it more um, commercial and Christmassy. And, uh, of course, Frosty resurrects every uh, winter, I guess, as long as he's got that hat. So guess, yeah. he's not gone for good, <laughs> which uh, some of us may have wished for, but uh, he keeps coming back. <laughs> Mark's, Mark's ultimate hatred for Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> this, this sounds like I'm going to get a lot of letters from Frosty <laughs> fans across the world. What's this dude's problem with People Frosty? People dress up like Frosty for Christmas can be very angry. <laughs> there is probably some like weird niche group out there that like are people that enjoy dressing like Frosty the Snowman and getting together to drink coffee or something, um, or just acting like it out. Like you know, there's a group for everything, so one probably exists out I, there. I think they're probably an offshoot of the furries. Yeah. and the furries kick them out exactly. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> they hang around outside and yeah. say, "I'll be back next year," and they say, "No, you won't." <laughs> I love it. Now, I know on our notes it says, like, yeah, maybe we'll skip this one, but I don't want to skip this one because mm-hmm. we talked about this a couple, like a year or two ago, and I do not remember why it was so, like, such a thing for them. Mm-hmm. But in our notes it says, Japan goes crazy for KFC at Christmas. And I need to be reminded why. And then we have a lot of listeners that probably didn't even listen to our last yeah. time. So, Mark, tell us why Japan goes crazy for KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, if you don't know. At Christmas time, uh, that was because um, Kentucky Fried Chicken with Colonel Sanders. They really pushed the notion of instead of having a turkey, a good traditional American Christmas meal was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Huh. And they had a promotion where they had statues of the Colonel in a Santa Claus outfit, and the Japanese just really took to it and now it's still a tradition even though uh i don't think kfc even does that promotion anymore but um i think it's funny that a lot of people on christmas day especially people who don't celebrate christmas go out for chinese food yeah yeah and in japan they go out for kentucky fried chicken yeah right sort of weird there don't know why that there's that parallel but um yeah they really embraced it and um they really love it, and That's, I'm sure that they have a real uptick in sales there in uh, the Colonel Sanders uh, for corporation. Sure. It's weird to think. I think he's long gone. So <laughs> yeah, he doesn't get to reap the benefit. I. It's weird to think that a corporation like KFC can have an impact on how a an entire culture practices a holiday, and because I don't know when KFC came into uh, Japan. I don't know how long ago that was. But I got a feeling it wasn't. I don't either. Yeah, I don't know. Scott, look that up. When okay. did when did yeah. KFC uh, go oh. into Japan? Because I'm kind of curious um, how long this took. Where it's now part of like, and I'm sure not every family does it. But oh no, it's but good percentage. 1970. 1970. Okay, so that was a little longer than I thought. So that's been around. So that's uh, what fifty Award fifty of the fifty years. Rights to KFC fifty-one years. Yeah, yeah, fifty. Yeah, fifty-two or so. Yeah, and yeah. I think it was uh, wasn't too long after they, you know, entered that market that they started marketing. You know, this is an American meal and a way to celebrate Christmas. Which, of course, I'm sure some families in America celebrate Christmas with KFC, but. It's certainly not a big deal. No, no. I'd, in fact, I think I'd, I'd, if I was doing that, I'd be like, oh, this is sad. Like, no one, 
no one could cook or like we were last minute or something like it wouldn't be i, I don't know i don't we're, we're, I don't, doing, we're doing barbecue this christmas yeah i know but barbecue that's a little more high end okay all right well, like that's famous dave's like that's, that's famous dave's. a little it's more high end, end. Yeah. like if you got to thaw out the turkey yeah yeah um, like totally and then it's like what are we going to do and it's like all the stores are out of turkey and yes. we don't have time to cook it and everybody's starving so we'll just do kfc I mean, I wouldn't hate it. I can't say, like, if someone's like, oh, here's a piece of KFC, like, extra crispy chip. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean, it tastes good to me, but there's just something a little sad about it. So I, it would not be my go-to Christmas meal. Uh, but, you know, whatever. That's interesting, though, that that is a thing in Japan. And like you said, you pointed out, like, the whole kind of opposite, even though it's like, you know, it's Chinese food, different than J- Japanese. But And I know that part of that, if you don't know, I think it goes back to Jewish people have a Chinese food often because everything's closed except for the Chinese places because they didn't, they, you know, right. a lot of them, yeah. they didn't, they didn't celebrate the holiday. Like it wasn't yeah. their thing. So they so were they like, we're going to stay open. Yeah. They want to eat. They have to, that's all they really so, have to choose from. And of course you see that in the Christmas story, that, that iconic movie where in the end they, they dinner they gets to, botched and they, they end up having to go to the only open restaurant, which is the Chinese restaurant yeah, with the, with the duck. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I love it. So, okay, are we ready to get to the stories? Yes. So I wrote this just for today. <gasps> oh. And this, this is called The Best Gift Ever. Kirby Harding finished the last of his Christmas dinner, spearing a final bite of turkey and using it to capture the tiny remainder of stuffing and mashed potatoes and gravy on his plate into one perfect final bite. Kirby smacked his lips, then wiped his mouth with a fine linen napkin. He raised his wine glass. That was excellent, he said, gesturing to the corpses of old man Fremont and his butler. Their their skulls caved in with the heavy silver candlestick Kirby had wielded with almost childlike glee. That same candlestick that provided a warm glow over his repast. He wasn't bothered by the blood, skin, and hair coating the base of it. Kirby downed the rest of his wine, red, he hated white, and tossed the glass into the fireplace. He dabbed his lips with a napkin and smiled at the satchel filled with cash on the table near two pies, mints, and pumpkin. Kirby had wanted to kill the old man and his manservant the moment he entered the house, them with their fancy ways and no clue what real people went through, but he was glad he had been smart enough, patient enough, to wait. August P. Fremont IV had a bundle in his safe. He also had quite a few rare coins and some jewelry belonging to his late wife, dead some 20 years before Kirby dropped in for dinner. The old man also had a stamp collection. A stamp collection! Kirby didn't even know if he could fence that stuff, and putting it on eBay or some such site was sure to draw the attention of the authorities. Maybe it was best to leave it here. Kirby helped himself to two large slices of pie. He found both vanilla ice cream and whipped cream in the fridge. Best Christmas ever. He had planned the robbery for many months, spying on Fremont and his staff at Christmas over the past two years. Apparently, the old man never had any visitors on Christmas Eve and let all his staff go after the meal was prepared, all except the butler, who was probably much too old to have a wife and kitties waiting for him. 
Earlier that day, Kirby had parked his car beyond the property and out of sight, hidden by a thicket of wild blackberry bushes. He waited until the staff left, then hiked to the front door. It's always gratifying when a 38 will gain you admittance, even if you have no standing in the social register. Kirby got up and stretched, his back cracking as he let loose with a colossal belch. He looked apologetically at his host and the butler, but they were too polite to remark on his bad manners. Kirby had toyed with the idea of spending the night there, but decided it was best to leave the state before his crimes were discovered. He'd take the butler's SUV, swapping out its plates for one he's, ones he had taken from the station wagon at a Walmart 10 miles south. He decided to search the house for any more valuables he could easily transport. Kirby didn't bother with gloves. He planned to burn the house down. He was good at setting fires that would not draw attention until he was some distance away. By the time anyone from town arrived, he would be safely gone and the house an inferno. Since he was taking the butler's vehicle, he decided he would park his car as close to the old house as possible. He'd siphon its gas and pour some over the upholstery before rigging the house to burn. He wasn't worried about the VIN number. The car was stolen, but he didn't want the chance of the cops finding some of his DNA or incriminating fibers. Always good to play it safe. Kirby went through the library and the solarium. The former had a couple of old-looking paintings, but Kirby didn't want to hassle carrying any of that stuff. Besides, he knew very little about art. Paintings looked valuable, but they'd burn with the rest of old man Fremont's treasures. And old man Fremont. Kirby went upstairs wondering if he should try to hawk the silverware and candlesticks in the dining room and kitchen. Too heavy. The cast jewelry and rare coins should be enough. Kirby expected the bedroom to smell old and musty, but it was clean and pleasant. He was tired after his meal and looked longingly at the big bed, but knew he needed to be on his way. He'd find an out-of-the-way motel and bound bed down there. Once he was safe in another state, he'd stay in a five-star hotel and live it up like he was old man Fremont himself. The old man did have some nice clothes in the walk-in closet, but he was taller and leaner than Kirby. So that was out. Kirby found some watches and a silver bracelet in a drawer, and that was a bonus. Another walk-in closet was full of a woman's clothes, which Kirby found a little creepy. He'd read on a library computer that the old woman had died when Kirby was still in high school. There was no additional jewelry, but there was a brush and comb set that looked expensive. There was still some hair in the brush, and Kirby knew that he'd be carrying around the old lady's DNA. Dangerous and creepy. The guest bedrooms and two upstairs bathrooms yielded nothing that was worth the trouble to try and hawk it. The last room was near the end of the hall, opposite what must have been a sewing room. Kirby opened the door and flipped on the light switch. It seemed to be a child's room, which was weird. As far as Kirby knew, old man Fremont and his long-dead wife had no kids. The Internet had said nothing about children. There was a small bed, which looked pretty old-fashioned, and toys on shelves that looked like they had come from an antique shop. Again, they might be valuable, but Kirby had no idea what such crap was worth, and he didn't want to fuck around with Google and eBay. On along another wall was a series of shelves built in and made of gleaming hardwood. There were trophies for school sports, 
and Kirby saw that most of them were from 1910. The name inscribed on the trophies was Matthew Fremont. Maybe the kid had been old man Fremont's granddad or something. There were framed photos of a kid of 10 or 11, freckled and with a crew cut, often wearing a sweater vest and bow tie with knickers and matching knee socks. The kid had a trace of a smile on his face. Kirby thought he looked like an asshole. There was a large hand-tinted photo of two little boys, both in private school blazers. One was the freckled kid, the other a smiling kid nearly the same age. A small bronze plaque at the bottom of the frame read, August and Matthew, Spring, 1909. The August in the photo did bear a resemblance to the old man whose blood was congealing on the expensive Persian rug downstairs, but that was probably a family resemblance. Except the August in the photo had a scar on his forehead. Didn't old man Fremont have a similar scar? The old man downstairs, could he be that old? Kirby chuckled, shaking his head ruefully. He was being an idiot. The old man was wrinkled like an elephant. Who could discern a scar in that mass of ancient flesh? Kirby wanted to go look, but decided he really didn't want to know. He was giving himself the heebie-jeebies and just wanted to get his loot and get the fuck out. There was a large object under a purple velvet cloth. Kirby figured it was another toy, but why cover it with purple velvet? Artem really wanted to go, but now he was consumed by curiosity and greed. He gingerly lifted the cloth, as if expecting there to be a live cobra underneath. It was a bell jar, nearly 18 inches high and 18 inches in circumference at the base. Inside it was an elegantly wrapped gift. The paper was gold and looked expensive, and the ribbon was red velvet tied in an ornate bow. Kirby could sense that it was quite old, although it looked like it had been wrapped this morning. Who the hell kept a gift like that under glass? How long had it been there? If it was for Matthew, why keep it after all this time? Why keep it wrapped? And if it was valuable, why not keep it in a safe? Kirby had to know what was inside. It was probably something stupid and sentimental, but it would only take a moment to open it. He carefully lifted the bell jar off its wooden base. As he set it on the floor, he hit the footboard of the bed, and the glass made a pleasant chiming sound that continued to reverberate like a tuning fork. Kirby took out a pocket knife and cut the ribbon, which he tossed aside. He ripped off the gold foil wrapping paper and threw it on the floor. Inside was an intricately carved box of mahogany. The box was heavy, but he bet most of the weight was in the wood, not the contents. The carving on the box seemed to be interlocking symbols. Kirby didn't understand them, but they made him uncomfortable. He was going to set the box down, but then noticed it had no lock. Just a quick peek. Probably the kid's baby shoes or some other crap. He lifted the lid slowly, still thinking there might be a snake inside. Then the box shifted in his hands, and Kirby cried out and let it drop to the floor. It landed right side up, the lid now open a good two inches. Kirby backed up and watched it warily, his atavistic fear of snakes greater than his curiosity. Something like a pale worm seemed to crawl over the edge of the box. It was joined by another and another. Three more appeared. The idea of worms spilling out of the small chest was bad enough, but then Kirby realized what they were. 
fingers. Pale and bony, they flexed as if tasting the air. Gotta be a monkey, Kirby thought. The fingers gripped the front of the box, and something larger and more terrible appeared behind the pair of skeletal hands. A head. A human head. The thing crawled up out of the box, seeming to grow in size as it did. Kirby backed up to the door, a scream building in his throat. The child thing stepped out of the box. It was now nearly four feet tall, dressed in a stained and moth-eaten sweater vest. Its shirt, bow tie, and knickers covered in stains and dust. Its arms were much too long, more like those of an ape, though far bonier than the arms of any healthy primate. Its legs were more normally proportioned, but its taloned feet had torn through its argyle socks. But the worst thing was its face. Its scalp was scabrous with tufts of red hair, and its face hung in leathery strips over a yellowed skull. Kirby could still see the remnants of freckles on that ruined ancient flesh and let out a low moan of terror. The thing looked up at him, its eyes featureless orbs that glowed and flickered like guttering Christmas candles. It smiled at Kirby, its teeth yellow, yellowed and splintered, its tongue a mummified artifact that licked dryly at its ragged lips. It opened its mouth to speak, and that's when Kirby remembered he was carrying a gun. He drew it shakily and fired the remaining four shots into the child thing. The bullets ripped through the already ruined sweater vest and shattered the window. Kirby dropped the empty pistol and ran out of the room, his loot and plans for arson forgotten. He reached the bottom of the stairs and couldn't resist the urge to look back. The child thing was floating lazily down the stairs. It was whispering something, but Kirby couldn't hear it. He bolted out the front door, slipping on the front steps and falling face first into the snow. Making panic little noises in his throat, he got to his feet and ran for his car a good quarter of a mile away. He looked back and was relieved to see the creature was not following him. He laughed and wondered now if he had had some kind of hallucination. Then the thing slammed into him from above, and again Kirby went down into the snow. The child thing dug its bony fingers into his shoulders, its taloned feet piercing his calves. The pain was like being burned with acid. Kirby struggled to free himself, but the horror was much too strong. Kirby screamed, but there was no one to hear. No one but Matthew Fremont, who continued to whisper over and over, My present, my wonderful present, my favorite present. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Oh, God. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo, uh, definitely. Bravo. I was not awesome. expecting yeah. some gory, creepy, kid-like thing to come out of the present i was like <laughs> i had my theories and ideas and I, I yeah i like stories like that because my brain starts going "Ooh, what's how how's well, this gonna go bit, there's just how's a, this gonna go yeah, wrong for him yeah well that, and that's the thing there there's there's <laughs> yeah, he happen? really deserves a bad end and he got it yeah yes. there's the, there's the justice it's satisfying 
You know, and that, that's so cool. Yeah, thank you so I much. I love for that. it. Oh, Mark, thank you. So we have another. You're welcome. Yeah, and we're going to do a re, we're going to revise another story tonight. Am I correct? Uh, a great uh, story. I'm I'm going to end with something a little sweet. And like I told you both in my email, I have a couple of friends who are very hardened and cynical, and it made them both cry. Oh yeah. <laughs> in a good way. So yeah, yeah, we'll end with that. And this is called Volpecula. When she was born. Her parents named her Zanzibar because her mother always thought it sounded magical. Since Zanzibar was a bit unwieldy for a little girl, they took to calling her Zoe. Zoe was a happy child and had two best girlfriends in their building, Bethany and Jacqueline. But Bethany's father got a job in Arizona, and Jacqueline's family went to take care of her grandma in Ohio. Sure, she still had friends at school, but no one who was a best friend. Zoe turned seven and decided that more than anything, she wanted a pet for Christmas. A kitten, a puppy, even a hamster. She just wanted a pet of her very own. But her parents told her the apartment manager didn't allow pets, and they couldn't afford to make him angry. Someday, perhaps, they'd have their own house, and then she could have a pet. Zoe cried, even though she knew there was nothing her parents could do. What about a goldfish, her father asked. She shook her head. She wanted a creature she could love and hold. She couldn't pet a fish, and she thought snakes, lizards, and spiders were icky. Zoe told them maybe Santa would bring her a pet, and they explained that the landlord wouldn't care where the little creature came from, and it would have to go. That night, when the house was dark and silent, Zoe crept out of bed to the window. She found the brightest star and wished on it and wrote a letter to Santa and let the wind carry it, knowing it would find its way to the North Pole. As children know, Santa gets all their letters, and stars hear all their wishes. The wishing fairy paid a visit to Santa in his workshop. They both agreed Zoe was a deserving child, and would love a furry companion with all her heart. They also agreed that the landlord was a problem. Then they both had the same idea and smiled. The wishing fairy and Santa Claus combined their magic and gestured toward the heavens. At two in the morning when Zoe woke up, a light in the window had awakened her and she got up to see what it was. There, sitting on the sill, was a most remarkable creature. It was like a small fox, only made of midnight and stars. Hello, it said. My name is Volpecula. Hello, Zoe whispered. Volpecula said, I have been given life, so you may have a pet. Zoe reached out and touched him, wondering if he would be cold like the night or hot like a sun. He was warm and soft and made a little trilling sound as she pet him. Do you live in the sky, she asked. I do, but I am so small, I do not think anyone will miss me. Will I be all right until a real animal comes along? Zoe hugged him then, and the little fox and the little girl were very happy. And so they remained companions for many, many years. One Christmas Eve, when Zoe was very old, she went to sleep for the last time. When she awoke, she found she was made of midnight and stars, and Volpecula was there waiting for her. Hello, he said, and Zoe smiled. And now they roam the heavens together, and they are happy to this day. I love that story. I love that story, too. Uh, 
<laughs> I, you know, I think uh, when it comes to pets, especially, uh, and I know you you know this, Mark, and I know you know this, Amber, uh, especially. Um, the, those are things you just don't want to, when you have a cat or a dog, especially, I've learned this the hard way over the last couple of years. Um, you don't want them to ever leave. You want them to stay no, with you forever. You, don't. you want them to stay with you forever. And it, it's, you know? it's, yeah. it's the, um, sad thing about pets that we usually outlive them. Yeah. And that's, uh, and that's the thing. And that's, you know, I, the, the funny thing about that is that Amber, uh, for years was like, we should get a cat. And I'm like, no, I can't deal with that. I don't want to, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons. And she's like, you know, but it's, it's, it's great. You know, you, you have a lot of great memories with them. And I blew it off for a number of years. And when we finally did get a cat, of course, I'm a total cat person. <laughs> I mean, that's right. all I think about is cats now all the time. That's all I look at on the internet. Uh, but, yeah, and especially there's that bond. But, you know, that's, and I guess it's not the way you should think, I, I, I believe, uh, is you're thinking about that. Well, yeah, you shouldn't deny yourself something just because well, it may go away or it will go away at some point. Well, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, and but Volpecula, you know, and that's what I love about that is that uh, stays with her, her, you know, their, for their entire lives, it sounds like. Am I correct? Right, yeah. right. And, that, and that's what I love about that but story. But I, I agree that um, yeah. the memories, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I told you we lived in a hotel, and it was a rather arduous year, and our cats really helped us, you know? Yeah. yeah. They, they're so loving, and they're so funny, and it just, you know, animals give back so much, you know? Um, and I'm not a, a cat person and not a dog person. If we had, we could have a dog, we probably would, mm-hmm. but uh, cats are a bit easier to maintain, and... Uh, you know, you can have a cat a lot of times where you can't have a dog. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I love animals, and I, I think they really enrich our lives. Yeah, I'm literally watching our cats just roll around the floor together right now. I'll be right back. <laughs> Give me a second, Amber. <laughs> what are you going to do? Oh, are they attacking? Yeah. Well, they go for some reason, Mark, whenever we do the podcast, they come downstairs, they terrorize us, they, like, fight <laughs> – they jump up on the table. They're interested in things they normally are never interested in, only while right. we're recording the show. And then the rest of the time, they're just begging for food or pets, and they, or they want nothing to do with us. But record a show, <laughs> and they're the most vocal, like little fighting creatures on the planet here. They're fighting for our attention. That's what they're doing. Well, I, they, uh, yeah, that's what I think. They want your attention. You're obviously very engrossed in something else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, you know. Uh, it's it's their time they figure. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, Good but old cats. That's what I love about that story though is that it's a lifelong relationship, and I think a lot of us would we wish that with with our pets. And yeah, yeah the reality is that's not that's not the case. Just we're different. But if you want no, to, um, Mark, I know people if they loved your writing, love those two stories. That's the, if that's the first time you've ever heard uh, one of Mark Onspaugh's stories. You can find more stories oh, yeah. by Mark Onspaugh, especially a whole entire collection of Christmas stories yeah. that he has written, which is one of the reasons why we initially had him on the show. I think the I think that if, was originally. You, I, I well, no, I think it was the Valentine book. Oh yeah, it was. Mark wrote a book on Valentine uh, Day stories, and mm-hmm. I think that might have been the first. That's, one. That was the first I think time. So. I think, that was the first time we met. Uh, yeah. But Mark, you got you have written all kinds of different. I mean, you have short stories. 
uh, like the, the ones we've focused on on the show, uh, centering around holidays, which are fantastic. But you are into sci-fi. You are into horror. You have uh, short stories. You have long stories. You have written screenplays. You've done it all. So where can people find your work? What is the best place for people um, to go out there and read all of the stuff you've written? I think on Amazon um, or similar uh, sites, I have a um, couple of novels with Penguin Random House that are uh, uh, ebooks only. Um, I'm hoping to change that down the line, but uh, they're both uh, horror novels. Mm-hmm. And then I have a couple of other novels with a small publisher in Tasmania called Severed Press. And then um, all my collections and then anthologies that I have stories on are pretty much all listed on Amazon under my name. Yeah, we're going to link all that stuff yeah. up for sure, We have, like we always do. And your website, you. your website I was on there today, is like really thorough. Like if anyone yeah. wants to like, you know, stalk their people they listen to on a podcast, <laughs> they can go learn everything about you and everything you've uh, done. Um, and you did a you you did a screenplay in it. I forget the name of the movie. It was I, I got it written down because there was some fairly uh, some actors that people would recognize names. Uh, where is that? Kill Katie Malone. Kill Katie Malone. Yeah, and so you produced that film, and Dean was it? Dean Kane was in there. Um, yeah, Dean Kane. Dean Kane and Maciela Lusta, who was in uh, the George Lopez show, is George Lopez's daughter. Okay. And uh, she's gone on. She's quite the poet and uh, <clears throat> also uh, involved in a lot of charities now. But, uh, yeah, that's 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 a ghost story, too. Um, didn't quite go the way that I had written it, but uh, <laughs> that's, you know, film is very different from uh, prose. You yeah. know, there are a lot of, right. a lot of people uh, stirring that soup. Yeah, and you gotta like shorten it down for usually, you know, you got you got to get okay. We got to get into an hour and a half. We got to get to this, you know, where they're. Well, that's ab- why I think a lot of. I mean, and Mark, I'm sure you know this. I mean, there's probably the book a lot is of, better. Well, that well, you always <laughs> hear that, but I mean, and I know you. I'm sure you have authors that you read, and there's authors that I read that I, I, I read their books, or I've read their books, and, and I know in my heart, I'm like this. I can see it on the big screen, right? Yeah. Um, but I know how complex the story is for some of the like Neil Stevenson. And my guy. I, I knew yeah, you were going to bring yeah. him up. And I love Neil Stevenson. So if they did Neil Stevenson, it's just, it's just too they'd, much. They'd probably slaughter it, and everyone would, yeah, would be disappointed. It would be, it would be disappointing. It's just there's just too the stories are way too complicated. Right. You know, they're they're huge epic stories. So, some of the some ahead. of those books really need to be like a uh, series on Netflix or HBO, where they can take their time with it rather than squeezing yes. it into. Uh, Yep. You know, two hours. Well, that's I, what I wish they had done yeah. with The Dark Tower by Stephen King, which. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and that is an amazing that, series of books. That's like one of his beloved series and, and more on the fantasy side. And I am surprised that they've done it that way uh, for the longest time. Oh, we're just doing a quick movie. Oh, we're going to just do this. Like, again, with, like you saying, it being a series on Netflix, I think filmmakers have that uh, so much more storytelling power with the more long form. Um, yeah, well, series. the series, and, and, and that's I think, and I think we all know that's the ser- that's the future of this thing. Too. I enjoy that. I, to me, I feel like yeah. it's just a really long, awesome movie. 
especially if it's done right. Yeah. I um off not off topic, but one of my favorite nonfiction books is Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. And Scorsese was gonna pick that up. Uh and if you've never heard of the story, it's about um oh, who's the serial killer in Chicago, Scott? The H. 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 Yes. Holmes. H. H. Holmes. And then, yes. And yeah. he was gonna yeah. be played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And they were going to do a movie. And I'm like, well, it's going to be an awesome movie because it's Scorsese and it's this Eric Larson book, which is amazing. And then it just kind of got put back on the back burner, back burner. Oh, and now it's going to be on Hulu and it's going to be like an eight episode thing. And I'm like, oh, now I feel like it's going to be it's going to have justice. It's going to be done right. And it's still Scorsese. I don't know if uh, Leo's still involved or if he's part of it still, but whatever. I'm thrilled that I'm going to get to enjoy it for whatever the eight or ten episodes. Um, and that's what it was. Then the book will be done. You know, it doesn't continue on after that. But eh. Mark, I want to thank you again yes. for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. Um, thank you. We, we always enjoy yeah. speaking. And with you. Uh, Merry oh, Christmas and Happy New Year to you both. Yes. Yes. And like to you and your family as well. And thank you for writing a story yeah. for us again. That just blows, I love it. blows me away every time. Can't thank you enough. MarkOnSpa.com. We're going to link everything up, of course, when we post a show up here. But, Mark, can't thank you enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks so much. Ghostly Talk! <laughs>